Father, it's our great privilege to serve such a great God. We thank you, Lord, this morning that not only we have gathered in this room, but you have gathered even before we came. Father, we pray that you would prepare the soil of our hearts this morning to hear your word. That it would fall upon good ground. It could be watered and nurtured and we could apply. Take heed to the things that we hear. Lest at any time we should drift away from them. Father, thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1940s, a ship left Europe and came to the shores of Israel near Akko. The ship's name was the Exodus. It was carrying thousands of Jewish refugees from Nazi camps in Germany and Poland and so forth to bring them into the land of Israel. And they got all the way to Israel and at the last, the English who were in charge of Israel at that time said, you can't bring your people in here, you have to go back to the death camps in Europe. They were devastated. Coming all of this way, traveling the miles of the sea to end up in their land, having to be told to go back. Well, that's sort of where we were last week in Numbers, where the children of Israel had wandered for 40 years, almost ready to enter the land, and the king of Edom, you remember, said, go back. Go back and go another way. You can't enter in this way. And the heart of the people became discouraged because of the way. Well, what would happen, do you think, or can you imagine, if some of the people on that ship in the 1940s, as they're entering the Akko Harbor, would have said, you know what, I don't want to go in after all. I'd rather go back. Or I'd rather just float out at sea the rest of my life. Well, that's sort of what we have here today in Exodus chapter 3, or in Numbers chapter 32. We have a whole different set of circumstances. Now the people are closer than what we read last week. They've gone the other way around Edom. They're on the borderland of the promised land, the land of Gilead. Close to the Jordan River, ready to enter into the land. They're closer than they ever were before. Now, do you think they'd be excited about it? Some of them would. But there's a group of people in this chapter that's rather bewildering. They're not so excited. Now, they're not complaining like they were last week. This group isn't discouraged like the group was last week. In fact, this group is content. And that's what's dangerous. It's always dangerous to be content with something less than what God has for you. It's always dangerous to settle for less when God often wants so much more. There was a story of a father who went into a room and his little daughter was there in the room smiling and happy because someone just gave her a brand new teddy bear. And as soon as the father entered the room, the little girl ran up and go, Daddy, look at my new teddy bear. And she was all excited and the father said, Oh, that's a pretty teddy bear and just kind of went along with it. That's beautiful. I love it. But now, sweetheart, I'd like you to throw it into the fire. She said, she just, her mouth hung open. Throw it into the fire. And he bent down and he said, Now, honey, you don't have to do it if you want to. But you've never known Papa to ask you to do something that wasn't good for you, that wasn't the best for you. I can't explain it all now, but if you trust me, you'll do it. She thought a while and she thought, you know, Daddy always has been good to me. He always has known what's best for me. And so she threw her new teddy bear into the fire. The whole day went by and her father didn't say anything. He just left the room. Next day he came 
and gave her something far better than that teddy bear, something that she'd asked for for a long time. It was in a package and he gave it to her. And he bent down and he said, Now, honey, I've done this to show you that you ought to trust your greater Father in Heaven because there's going to be times in your life when He's going to give you something and He'll want you to get rid of something to get the best. And He's going to ask you to get rid of something or to not do something and you might not understand it at the time but always realize that He knows what's best for you. Well, this is a story where people settled for less than what God had for them. Settling on the border. In verse 1 it says, The children of Reuben, the children of Gad, had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses until Eleazar the priest to the elders of the congregation saying, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliele, Shebam, Nebo, and Beon. The country which the Lord has defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore, they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession, and do not take us over the Jordan. And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now, why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given to them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. And when they went into the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day. And he swore an oath saying, Surely none of the men who came from Egypt from twenty years old and above shall see the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness for forty years, until all of the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all of these people. You say, well, that's a nice little story, Skip. But that's just a historical narrative. That was taken place thousands of years ago, so long ago, what in the world would that have to do with me? You know, a lot of people love the New Testament, including myself, obviously. But a lot of people look at the New Testament and say, the New Testament, now that's where the Christian truths are. That's where practical Christian living is. That's where I want to settle down and live, all of the New Testament, and they neglect the Old Testament. But it's wrong to think that the Old Testament is just a historical narrative without any personal application to our lives today. That's why I don't like it when churches neglect the Old Testament. There's precious truths in it. In fact, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is dedicated to the wilderness wanderings out of the book of Numbers and the practical lessons that they have for us. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food. 
They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And all of these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the age have come. All of these things, he says, were examples to you and to me. This word example means a picture. A picture. The Old Testament examples were pictures for us in the New Testament. Let's say we were going to take a trip to Hawaii. You can't wait to get there. Especially in the dead of winter. And you pick up a little brochure that's just all of the descriptions about Hawaii. And you read through it. And it talks about palm trees dotting the landscape. White beaches, dark lava beaches, clear aqua water and waves to 15 feet tall, great surfing. <laughs> and you read through that list and you go, man, this looks good. And you imagine it in your mind. But then you get another brochure with pictures on it. And all of a sudden you look in a picture at all of what was written in the description. You go, oh, that's gorgeous. A picture is definitely worth a thousand words. And you can see it, and it's much better than just a written description. So also the Old Testament. As the New Testament talks about the Christian life, the Old Testament is a picture of the Christian walk. These are word pictures on how we are to live. Examples in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. 400 years, Israel was in captivity to Egypt. They were in bondage. They cried out because the Egyptians made them serve with hard labor and rigor. They cried to the Lord for deliverance. And God delivered them. Now that is a picture of us. It's a picture of the Christian walk. Where we were into bondage of lust and we were in bondage of sin, God delivered us when we cried. The whole world is in bondage until they're delivered by Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people don't realize that. In fact, before I was saved, I thought I was free and my own boss and I was Joe Cool. And all of my friends thought they were Joe Cool. And I remember the people I hung around with, you know, we thought we had it together and we were free. And I remember one time a friend of mine who accepted the Lord went up to the friend that I'd been partying with and dabbling in witchcraft with. We thought we were so cool. And he came up to me and goes, Hey, Gino, how's life with the devil lately? Gino became infurious. What do you mean with the devil? I'm a Christian too, just like you. And we didn't know that we were in bondage until the Lord really revealed our own hearts to us. And then we cried out, God, deliver me from this cruddy life. And we cried out and the Lord delivered us as the Lord delivered Egypt from bondage, He delivered us from corruption. It's a picture, an example. But being delivered or saved is just the beginning. God has far more for a person to experience than just being delivered out of the bondage of sin. In Exodus chapter 3, God said this to Israel, I have seen your affliction. 
I have heard the groanings of the children of Israel and I am come down to deliver. And he said, I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up from that land into a good and a large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Did you notice that? God didn't say, I'm just going to come and deliver them from Egypt, period. He said, I'm going to deliver them from Egypt that I might bring them into a better land, a new land, one flowing with milk and honey. As it happened, Israel disobeyed God and they wandered. That also is a picture of the Christian life. For 40 years, they wandered in the desert, not able to enter the land because of unbelief. Now, it wasn't God's will that they wandered for 40 years in the desert. It was God's will to bring them into the land. God didn't want them to wander for 40 years. God didn't say, hey, let's deliver these people and then just leave them in the desert. We'll watch them croak. This is going to be fun. He wanted to bring them into a good land. But because of unbelief, they wandered. That also is a picture or an example of the Christian. So many times wandering with no goal, with no purpose, from church to church, never satisfied, never rooted, wandering. Wandering in their own hearts. Wandering in the desert, as Israel did for 40 years. Now, we remember from last week, too much wandering can cause discouragement. Too much discouragement can cause complaining. In this chapter, there's a different group. This also is a picture for us. A model, a negative example. Here we have a group of people that didn't wander. They're at the border of the land, but they refused to go in. They didn't want to enter the land. They were content sitting on the border. This people was holding on to the teddy bear, so to speak, not throwing it in the fire to receive something better. They go, no, I like my teddy bear. I'm going to hang on to it. I want to stay right here. And the picture for us this morning is the great need for the church to go on in their commitment with Jesus Christ. To not fall short, but to go all the way with Jesus Christ in commitment and in service. One thing that is greatly lacking in the church today. Now, first of all, let's look at the choice that the children of Israel made. Verse 1. Now, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and as we'll see later, half the tribe of Manasseh, had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jezer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock. And they go on to say how that the Lord brought it to them. Verse 4, the country which the Lord defeated from before the congregation of Israel is a land of livestock. And your servants have livestock. This was the land of Gilead. That was their choice. Between two rivers, a very fertile piece of country, dark soil, green grass. Some of the historians and the writers have said that the land of Gilead has forests full of oak trees and pistachio trees. Running brooks of water. Beautiful place. The Bedouins, even to this day, use it for a resort. But the problem is it was on the border of the land. It wasn't in the land. Just on the edge. They were content to live on the border, not go into the land. The reason that's a problem is God repeatedly, through Exodus and Leviticus, said, I'm going to bring you into the land over the Jordan River. 
That's the land I want you to possess. It's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. They got up to Gilead and they go, hey, this is pretty nice. We like it right here. And so they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Now, why have the children of Israel gone so far for 40 years, traveled so many miles to get into the land, and at the last moment, two tribes say, uh, we want to stay here. When they've traveled so far, why? The root problem is verse 11. Surely none of them who came from Egypt 20 years old and above shall see the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they have not wholly followed me. They were half-hearted followers of the Lord. Oh, they were following him, all right, but not completely. Oh, they were delivered, yes. But they hadn't entered the land of fruitfulness. They were still wanting to live on the border because, verse 11, they have not wholly Followed me. Why? Why are they slowing down? Why are they settling for the borderland? Oh, because Gilead is so nice. It's such a pretty land. And we have lots of cows, verse 1. And this is a great land to raise cattle in. And cattle, that's our bucks. That's our temporal welfare. And you know we have to look out for that. And they saw, that's the key word in verse 1, the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead. It was pleasant for livestock and they put that above everything else. You know, Jesus said, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. You can always tell what a person serves by what he treasures. Whatever a person treasures and loves and spends most of his time with, that's what his life is consumed with. Although he says he has a relationship with the Lord, watch and see where his treasure is. That's where his heart will be. They looked at the land of Gilead. It looked so nice. So fertile, dark soil, great for livestock. This is it. This is what we want. And they were more concerned with temporal values more than spiritual values. And so they said in verse 5, Therefore, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession and do not take us over the Jordan. Now, this is a picture of many Christians. They've been delivered, they're saved, they know the Lord, but they're content to live on the border of their walks with the Lord. They've left Egypt, but they haven't entered the land of fruitfulness yet. And they're content. And it's dangerous to be content when God has so much more for us. They were content to stay there. And it is a picture of the Christian life, the worldly-minded Christian. The person who has never allowed his life to come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Still under the influence of the flesh. Still thinking about Gilead and about cattle and about monetary temporal values. Always thinking about their job. Always thinking about their bank account. Always thinking about their hair and their shirt and their dress. Always thinking about their sport. They devote all their time to their sport and working out. All of their time is consumed with pleasure the land of Gilead, content to settle east of the Jordan River and not enter the land of fruitfulness. They saw the land that it was good for their cattle and they wanted to stay there. 
And so they said, let us have this in verse 5. Let us take this as a possession. The rest of you go over the Jordan River. In other words, they were saying, hey, listen, Moses, if it's okay with you, and you know, since we're going to get a piece of land anyway, why wait? We like it here. The rest of you go over the Jordan River. You can have your land. We like it here. We want to hang out in Gilead. This is nice. This is called cruising in the spirit. You heard of Paul said, walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is called cruising in the spirit or putting it in neutral in the spirit. I call it settling for second best. How many have settled and are settling for second best? Saved, yes. Delivered, yes. Still on the border. Not entering into a land of fruitfulness and all the promises that God has for them saying, oh, but this is nice. I like staying right here. The rest of you go, we'll just hang out. We're still the people of God. We like the borderland more than anything else. You know that God always wants the best for his children? Now, I've known that that phrase has been misused in the last 10, 20 years. But I believe that God wants the very best for his children. Our problem is, is that we don't know what the best is. We think the best means the most expensive or the biggest. And our problem is, is that we don't know always what the best is. But God always wants the best for his children. But we will always settle for second best. You see, so often we think the best is immediate fulfillment. The here and the now. Why wait? This is Gilead. This is good. We'll take it. We don't always know what best is. And God has so much more for us. You see... We think that the best is immediate fulfillment right now. The teddy bear. No, I'm not going to give it up. I like it. At least it's something. I'm going to hang on to it. I like my teddy bear. Satan is a master at the second best. He's the professor of the university of the second best. He can always give you the second best. And he'll always try to make you settle for less than what God has for you. He's a master at it. He tried it out on Jesus Christ. Jesus came to redeem the world back to God. Satan said, Jesus, if you'll worship me, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. That's what you came for. That's what you want. You came to redeem the world back to God. I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go the way of the cross. You don't have to go the hard way. I'll give it to you now. Immediate fulfillment. Why go the hard way, Jesus? Why go the way of the cross? I'll give it to you now. Immediate fulfillment. Satan will come to you and says, Oh, I'll give you immediate fulfillment. Right now. Take this. Grab onto this. Yeah, but I don't know if it's God's will. Oh, who cares about if it's God's will? At least it's something. Grab onto it. Settling for second best. Now, I want you to realize, before we get into the next couple verses, that this land of Gilead on the east of the Jordan River was a replacement for the children of Israel. It was a replacement for the real thing. God wanted to give them the promised land. They wanted the land of Gilead because it looked good for their temporal value. Settling for second best. It was a replacement. I believe that many children of God take replacements into their Christian lives. No real changes, they just take replacements. Instead of going to secular parties, let's have Christian parties. 
Instead of going to secular concerts, let's fill it up with Christian concerts. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing at all wrong with Christian concerts. The trouble is many people play games. And instead of really changing their lives, it's just a replacement. They haven't really changed. Instead of going in the world and to parties playing games, they now go to church and play games. But there's no real change. It's got a new name tag, but it's still the same. No change. Just a replacement for the best. Something just to fill their lives when God has so much more for them. Verse 6, we get the rebuke of Moses. Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. Have you ever seen a rerun before? You've seen it a few times. And you see, and you know that this is exactly what's going to happen. You see the old Star Trek reruns, and they're usually the same. You know that right about now, Spock and Bones are going to get into an argument. (laughs) And since you've seen it before, you know, you can go into the kitchen and get a drink of water or something, because it's not that important. You've seen it before, it's a rerun. Well, this was a rerun for Moses. Moses went, I can't believe it. All over again. We've been wandering for 40 years in the desert. And it was because we failed to enter into the land 38 years ago that we wandered. And here you guys don't want to enter in again. What's the deal? Now you remember what happened? Twelve spies were sent in. Ten came back and said, there's giants in the land. It's too big. We can't go in. We can't take the land. They're too mighty for us. We're like grasshoppers to them. But two of them came back, Joshua and Caleb. Remember the story? They came back with this humongous bunch of grapes on their shoulders. And they said, it is a good land. God's promises are true. We can go in and take the land. Who cares a few giants? You know how big God is? I mean, God can just... (laughs) Let's go for it. Words of faith versus words of unbelief. But human nature is more prone to believe negative things. And they said, oh, there's giants in the land. Forget it. We're not going. And because of unbelief, they failed to enter the land. This is the second time. It's a rerun for Moses. You know, at this point, if I were Moses, I would have just lost it. I'd wanted to just start punching out these guys. We've wandered for 40 years in the desert. Are are you guys into desert or something? I mean, do you like horny toads and rocks and sand? Is that it? We're on the border of the land and you don't want to go in? And Moses rebukes them and he's got a good reason for it. Because God wanted to give them something far better than what they were able to settle for. And so he says... So your brethren go to war, notice, while you sit here. You know that this is always the case? A great many people are contented to sit and do nothing while a few people do everything. It's always the case. In any time there's a work of God, there's a few that are doing it and there's a majority that just like to sit. Oh, you say there's things that need to be done? Go to prayer meetings? Me? I mean, that's kind of hard. I mean, I wanted to go to a movie or a Christian concert or something. That doesn't take as much effort. Me? Visit hospitals? Me? Go to prayer meetings? Me? Visit the prisons? Me? Teach a Sunday school class? Now, I know there's a battle out there and everything, but uh, Gilead is so nice. And my cows are getting so fat. 
That's the attitude. Well, then who prays? Who does all the things that need to be done? A few. A few wholehearted people who wholly follow the Lord. While the rest are content to sit east of the Jordan River. Now, if this is getting a little too close and a little bit itchy and you go, you know, he doesn't need to talk about things like that. Maybe it's only because it's true. I don't seek to bring condemnation on the church, but I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict us of those areas that need work. Moses rebuked them and said, are you going to sit here, do nothing, while everyone else goes? And I want you to notice something in this verse. He says, shall your brethren, notice, go to war while you sit here. Go to war. We are not in a bless me club, you guys. We're in a battle. And it takes armor. And you can never get victory unless you fight. You can never win a battle unless you fight. And a lot of people are afraid to step out in their walks with Jesus Christ because of this verse. It's a battle. It's hot. It's not easy. And any time a person makes an effort or decides to walk holy with the Lord, you can expect opposition. You can expect Satan to come at you with both barrels. I'm going to pray from now on. Expect 15 phone calls the minute you sit down to pray. I'm going to get into the Word. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You will be attacked. And because of the battle, many people say, well, I guess I like the east side of the Jordan just as well. The Gilead is so nice. We can just settle down and be comfortable the rest of our lives right here. We'll do it. And they settle for second best when God is so much more for them to go on into. I can personally attest to the fact that it is a battle. I have never gone through more trials and difficult times as a Christian spiritually as I did when I went into the ministry. Or the times I decided to do anything or step out in any venture for the Lord. When we first moved to Albuquerque, just gotten married, new town, new job, new everything. First six months were trial city. Not just because we were newly married and my wife had to put up with me. But because of the spiritual oppression. And after six months and we were teaching the Bible study in the lakes, we went back at Christmas time to California. And I've told you this story before. It was so beautiful that Christmas. 80 degrees outside. People running around in their shorts. Palm trees. I thought, oh man, I've left paradise. <laughs> you see, I still had orange juice going through my veins at that time. <laughs> and as I was there, I told my wife, you know, it's been hard out there, hasn't it? But as we were born and raised here, let's just, let's just minister here. And I was content because of the battle to go back over the Jordan into Gilead. But see, God sort of tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Now Skip, when you went to New Mexico, you told me that you'd stay there a year and see what I did. You've been there six months. You owe me six months. Get back. <laughs> so I did. And I'm glad I didn't settle for second best when God had so much more. Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now, we've seen the choice that they made. We've seen the rebuke of Moses. What about the results of settling east and living on the border? First of all, with other people. What will the result be 
if I as a Christian decide to just sit on the border, living on the border, what will the result be in other people's lives? Verse 7. Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Discouragement. You know, last week we talked about discouragement, didn't we? We talked about how that you can be discouraged because of the way. The way can be tough. The trials can be tough. It can be hard. And you can get discouraged. But did you realize that you also can discourage other people by your walk? You can discourage people by the way we live. Now, often when we make decisions, we don't think about that. We think, how is this decision going to affect me in my life? We don't think, how is it going to affect all the other Christians who know me? Often, it can be discouragement. And so he uses an example, verse 8. Thus did your fathers when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For they went up to the valley of Eshcol, they saw the land, but they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given unto them. Scripture says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And one worldly-minded Christian will influence others to be worldly-minded. You can discourage people by the way you live. Now, this is especially sad among older believers, not younger believers, older believers. Many times, more than not, I see older believers discouraging younger believers. During the Jesus movement in California, when people were getting saved by the barrel load, all of my friends were Christians, and I became one. But to a lot of them, it was just a fad. It was a thing to do. Everybody was doing it. And some of the people that I looked up to as role models for my walk, I saw them backsliding. And that shook me at my roots. All of the people that were sort of like heroes to me are now sliding backwards. And I realized from that point on, my faith can't be in them. My foundation has to be in Christ. Otherwise, I'm going to topple. But it began to shake me. And we need to remember that young Christians will look at us and we can discourage them by our walk. They can see our lives and they can be discouraged just because of our walk. And you know, young Christians are beautiful. They're so excited. You know, every little thing, they come up to you and they go, Oh, I got a new revelation, a brand new verse. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we fold our arms and I've heard that before. And we think, give them time to mature. They'll dry up and be bummed out like we, the rest of us are. And we quench that excitement. Moses said, you're going to discourage the rest of the people because they're looking at you. Remember that our attitude affects other people and we are an example and our decisions affect other people. That's how it affects other people. How does it affect our own life? I'd like you to turn to Joshua 22. Joshua 22, let me briefly give you the background. They're settling east of the Jordan River. Reubenites and Gad go into the land to fight, come back and decide to settle east of the land. In verse 10, when they came to the region of the Jordan which is the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built an altar there by the Jordan, a great and an impressive altar. And the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region of the Jordan, on the side occupied by the children of Israel. 
When the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. There was division. Because they settled on the land, they built an altar. And the children of Israel were going to war against Gad and Reuben, who were also the children of Israel. There was a division already among the people. And it goes in verse 16, the whole congregation of the Lord said, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord and that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of pure not enough from us for us from which we were not cleansed until this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord? Verse 19, Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us, by building yourselves an altar beside the altar of the Lord. The first and obvious thing is that they broke fellowship with the rest of the children of Israel. And those that are half-hearted and settle on the border, always, immediately, you watch them, they start breaking fellowship with people. They're distant. They're separate. Although they may come to church, although we may sing together, you know, people like this often love large groups because they can go in and come out and no one will know it. They're not accountable. They hate the small groups because that's accountability. So they love just to fit in with the crowd, go and leave real quick. And these two tribes built an altar for themselves. You see, the altar was where the sacrifices were with the children of Israel in the tabernacle. They sort of wanted, since they didn't go God's way and they went their way, to sort of take it home with them. And I'm going to have our little altar for ourselves here. Being separate from the rest of the body of Christ, causing division. Next, I'd like you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 10 to look at a couple verses. 2 Kings chapter 10. Verse 32. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Why? This was his judgment upon their disobedience. Let's see who went first. And Hazael, this is the king of Syria, conquered them in all of the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, Manasseh, from Aor, which by the, the river Arnon, including Gilead, and Bashan. Those that were on the east of the Jordan fell to the enemy first before all the rest of Israel did. Now, Gilead, remember, was a beautiful place. It's a great place to hang out and raise cattle. But although it was beautiful, it had no natural defenses. It had no barriers. They were open prey for the enemy. Consequently, they fell first. As is true with half-hearted believers who don't wholly follow the Lord content to live on the border and not enter into the fullness that God has for them. They're sitting ducks. They don't have any defenses. And they're just sitting on the border and they're getting shelled and they're getting defeated and beat all the time because they're separate. They're half-hearted. This is the result. They fall quick. And if you're living on the border, you won't live there very long. 
you can easily be sucked into the rest of the crowd by living in the border. And that's what happened to these two tribes east of the Jordan River. You know, in Israel today, there's a town up in the very north, close to the border. It's called Kiryat Shmona. And it's a little town that is at the base of the hills that go up into Lebanon. And this city for years has been the target of enemy shelling because one, they're on the border and they have the view from the enemies down from the Golan Heights, down into their country. And they're shelled and targeted, at least they were up to the last couple of years, because they're on the border, living on the border. No defenses. There was a farmer who had apple orchard. He had one tree that was on the border. And he said that every... When the autumn, I guess, when the time of the year to get the apples, the branches would be hanging over both sides of the fence, over on the street and over on his side. It was right on the border. And the kids on their way to and from school would get sticks and they'd beat that tree to get the apples before the farmer would come out and get them. And then when he heard the rustling of the tree of the kids, the farmer would go out there and he'd start beating his side of the tree to get all the apples down first. The farmer said that was the most beat tree in his whole yard. It turned into an apple bush. It was beat from both sides because it was on the border. Christians who live on the border are the most beat up people on earth. They're beat by the Lord who's trying to convict them and bring them back. And they're beat by the enemy. And they're frustrated. They're living on the border. They have no natural defenses. I think of Samson. And we think of Samson as a mighty man of strength. He was a mighty man of strength, but he was a spiritual wimp. He was strong flesh. I mean, he went to Nautilus. He pumped iron. He was strong. But he was a wimp spiritually. And he flirted with Delilah one too many times. And because he was weak spiritually and living on the border, he fell. So, it can cause discouragement. It can cause division and separateness. It can cause you to fall because you have no defenses. And lastly, I'd like you to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. This is the story where Jesus took a little boat from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. And as he went there, it says in verse 2, Come out from the boat immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had a dwelling among the tombs, one and they could not bind even with chains. And it goes on to tell, you're familiar with this story, how that this man was demon-possessed. Jesus delivered him from the demons. And it says that uh, in verse um, 13, 14, so forth, that the unclean spirits were cast into a herd of pigs that were grazing, and the pigs went down into the water and got killed. And then we read in verse 15, they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed, that had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed about the swine. And they began to plead with him to depart from their region. You see, they were more interested in pigs than their pocketbook. I mean, their pocketbook than the Lord. They wanted to kick Jesus out. They were more interested in the pigs and the money than the spiritual wholeness of this individual. They were concerned with their profit. And so they said, Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you anymore. Now, first of all, it's forbidden for the Jews to raise pigs. 
And here they're raising pigs. Not only are they raising pigs, but they were so into it, they kicked Jesus out. You know who it was? Verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes, where the children of Gad and Reuben had settled. It's the same area where they settled east of the Jordan River. At one point they were into their cattle, now they've degenerated and they're into their pigs, which is unkosher and illegal for the Jews. Started out, and now they've degenerated and they're kicking Jesus out of their borders. Get out of here, we want nothing to do with you. Spiritual degeneration. They're still interested in their pocketbook because the land of Gilead is so nice. But this is where the tribe of Gad and Reuben had settled. Get out of our borders. Spiritual degeneration. These are the results. Now, I don't want to leave you hanging here. I want to point to you one last verse in Numbers 32. How to cross over. One last verse. See, I don't want to leave you here. Exhortation without solution is useless. How can I cross over into the land? First of all, know that it's God's will for you to inherit the land and not settle for second best. Number two, verse 12. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, they have wholly followed the Lord. It's a heart that is wholly following the Lord. Now, these were a minority. The majority was doing something else. The minority, Joshua and Caleb, were wholly following the Lord. This word, to wholly follow the Lord, means literally they were fulfilled to walk behind me, says the Lord. They were fulfilled to walk behind me. In other words, these people were content to follow me wherever I go. I was leading them into the land. They were content to go into the land. I was leading them over the Jordan. They were content to go over the Jordan. They were content to fight battles even with giants. Oh, that's sort of scary though. Giants and all. But they were content or fulfilled to follow the Lord. That's how to cross over. A heart that is wholly following the Lord. Now, that's not all. Because the children of Israel didn't go alone. God didn't say... Okay, go. See you later. Have fun. Go over the Jordan. He led them through whom? Joshua. Joshua ends up leading the children of Israel into the new land. Moses, the lawgiver, dies. Joshua leads them into the land, and that's how they got there. Remember what the Gospel of John said? The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Jesus is the Greek name for Joshua. Joshua and Jesus are exactly the same name means Jehovah is salvation. And just as Joshua led them into the land, our Joshua will lead us into the land. We wholly follow the Lord, but we can't make it alone. We need to follow our Joshua into the land. Where are you this morning? Are you in the wilderness? Are you wandering? Still in the desert? Or have you entered the land? Are you in a land of fruitfulness? All the promises of God are yours. Or are you still on the border, settling for second best? Do you want fruitfulness? It's found in the land of Canaan. You want victory? It comes through battles and for fighting. But don't worry yourself or be afraid because you can't get there unless your Joshua leads you there. Yes, you wholly follow the Lord, but Jesus Christ must lead you into that land. Father, it is our desire to be wholly consumed in a commitment to you, to not hold on to that teddy bear, to give it over to you, to not settle on the border, 
Lord, we've seen the choice and we've also seen the results of that choice. Deciding to not get into the full land of promise that you've given to us as your children. Father, we want to return to you. We want to be content to follow after you, follow in your footsteps, to be led into the land of fruitfulness. To not make a choice, Lord, and settle for second best. We ask that.